players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Crop Rotation, Life from the Low, Mox Diamond, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashanral on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 55 of the Eternal Glory Podcast. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined as always by Bryant Cook and Brian Koval. How are y'all doing tonight? Bang, bang. Wait, that's an answer to that I question? I th- think that... Uh, I'll, that I'll, I'll allow it. Fire. Oh, oh, okay. I, I, okay uh, uh, I, I thought this was more like I'm a, I'm a broken car and I'm exiting the driveway and giving you a little kickback yep, just so you bang, know bang. I still love you. Yep. Love our chitty chitty bang, bang. Uh, Brian Cook. Yeah. <laughs> Is that even what a rapid fire sounds like? I would think more of like a rat a tat 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 tat. Like, yeah, bang, I was bang, on the machine gun like line. A six shooter in each hand, Yosemite Sam. Anyway. <laughs> All right, Brian. What is what is life like for for you and your uh, explosive car? Was that a me or Brian? I didn't hear a T. You're the Brian. You're the one with an exploding car. Much better. Bartholomew Cook. Well, when I made my bang bang sound, it's like the thought of me exercising like is just not going to happen. So I got like two solid bangs in there and then I'm done. So, yeah. <laughs> you got uh, anyway, long for my... a single bang. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I got some really bad news. My favorite local game store from the Vault Games will be closing. So if you're someone that appreciated their 2Ks in the Northeast they're going away. The last one is actually this upcoming weekend, August 28th is Legacy, and then that's it. Um, it wasn't COVID-related. It was just like personal life stuff for the owner and decided that they couldn't manage the store anymore. So kind of bummed that uh, the store is going to be closing. They kept Legacy alive up here. That's harsh. It's always hard watching a store go down. Well, at, at least a store you care about. A lot of times, like, there's local stores, and it's just like, yeah, okay, there were things wrong here. I, I see why you went down. But when a, when a good store goes down, you know, due to outside circumstances or finances or whatever, it, it's, it sucks because you'll lose a little bit of the community. Brian and I were talking about this a little bit before we went live, but they were one of those game stores that embraced 100% Proxy Legacy very early on, and that just made Legacy come back. We were getting, like, 16 to 20 people fairly regularly. And uh, it was just nice to see. Yeah, Pittsburgh's in kind of a similar spot right now where the two best game stores are still open, but neither of them are running events. And one of them just, the owner seems to have stopped giving a single shit. Um, Just no effort. Uh, That one shares a parking lot with the mall near my house. And I went to a movie with my girlfriend. It was a 710 movie this past friday night and the game store was just closed doors locked lights off seven o'clock on a friday night it's just like wow heartbreaking like, what are you even doing in there if you're not running fnm and it's for sure not covid related like they they are avid covid deniers and complete 
conspiracy theory crazy people that a lot of locals stop supporting them anyway because of that. But yeah, they're just not even bothering. And then the other good store, their play space is flooded out from the Mexican restaurant that shares the building with them. And they're just fighting with their landlord to clean and rebuild the space. They just literally don't have a place to put anyone right now. It's it's a pinch because those are the two best stores in the city by a lot. Yeah, I I technically have a local game store, but modern is the the most I can get out of that. And, you know, since pandemic hit, my drive to go out and play paper magic has disappeared. I've, I've actually kind of replaced my weekend time with something else. Um, I actually started playing Dungeons and Dragons last weekend. Yes. Love it. Yeah. So my, my girlfriend has been playing in this campaign for a couple of months and most of the the crew are my fellow teachers and so i organized this elaborate conspiracy setup involving multiple weeks of planning in which i ended up at their place on a night where they were going to play D D for dinner and i was just gonna sit there and play on my switch after dinner and then about an hour into the session the dm just turns to me and is like phil would you like to introduce your character and my girlfriend just lost her freaking mind it was <laughs> nice. awesome nice I love those twists. Um, I think I'm pretty safe because no one in my campaign listens to this cast, but I won't give away too much just in case. Uh, the campaign I'm in right now, I started D&D during COVID. I'd never played before in my life, but it's a thing you can do over Zoom. So that's what we did. I'm in my second massive campaign. Like The first one lasted seven or eight months and we're like six months into this one. And I think we're approaching the final end of it, but uh, I have something cooked up with the the GM that we cooked up on like day zero, like on the character sheet, he and I came up with a secret scheme that will be revealed by the end of the campaign. And I'm pretty stoked for it. What's your, what is your character? Um, I am playing a sorcerer. Um, I have a very, very interesting backstory that I can't talk about very loudly because my girlfriend is in the apartment. All right, and, don't give uh, anything away. Mo- most of my plot has, uh, has not come to light yet. Um, nice. but I'm I'm super stoked about it. It's the sort of thing where every time I cast a spell in battle, the party is like, what the fuck is this? Nice. Um so like my my first game action was to cast a circle of death. So there there is suspicion on me. Nice. Uh in my last campaign we had a quote unquote priest. Or a cleric. He was masquerading as a cleric, but he was actually a warlock the whole time and like just went slightly more evil. We would like catch him in the corner of the room talking to demon spirits and he's like, nothing. (laughs) And by the end, he just fully embraced it. He had gone like full lich powers and was complete just zombie monster. And that was a a fun sub story going on. Are you doing an accent or anything for your character? Um... I'm not necessarily or a voice, a voice at all. I am, I, I am talking in a very elevated style. Okay. Uh, my my character is a a very pompous, well educated sorcerer who's a little bit prickly, and so much of the party is like happy go lucky, let's be friends. I'm just gonna fire off the first thing that comes out of my mouth, and my character is just like, no, no, we need to plan things. What are you doing? Nice. Uh, it's it, it's been really fun. We played for seven hours last week. Nice. My character right now is a French pirate. So I have the full like ridiculous like Gaston Lumiere, like French accent for that character. And also in the party, 
is a swarm druid who is hundreds of hermit crabs in like an old-timey diving suit like the one with like the big dome on it and he has a russian accent and me and that character frequently accidentally exchange accents because we we're like having a conversation and our accents just blur into this like french russian combination (laughs) then we have to like take a breath and step out of it it's that's a delight all right. Before we become the D and D podcast, Brian, what what else has been up with you? Uh, I'm back at work. Like I said, I would be uh, our week of pre service, like Tuesday to Tuesday. Just get trainings up, get room set up, is complete. I start with students tomorrow, and it's been kind of rough. Uh, anyone who follows me on Twitter might have seen me just tweet into the void, like any full time content creators want to have a conversation. So I was feeling out some some options and. I don't think I'm going to go full-time content creator, or at least I'm not going to leave my job to do it after talking to a few people. If I happen to leave that job because it just happens to suck in the next couple of months, I'll probably spend some time seeing if I can make that work. But it's going to happen organically if it happens. I'm not not ready to jump into the abyss on that one. And to blow off steam, I have realized that a round of storybook Storybook Brawl. I always want to say Storybrook. That's a magic card thing. A a round of Storybook Brawl lasts the same amount of time as an episode of Neon Genesis Evangelion. So I just have each of those things up on my two monitors, and I'm just like watching uh, Evangelion and playing Storybook Brawl, and that is how I spend most of my free hours right now. Is this your first time with Evangelion? It is, yeah. All right. I, I good luck. I'm I'm at the back end where it's starting to get real heavy, and uh, I I actually like sleep is precious to me right now. Like between work, making content, all these meetings, and like the, this podcast, like I don't have many free hours, and sleep is precious. Last night I logged off my computer to quote unquote go to bed, plugged in headphones to my phone, and just laid in bed and watched two more episodes because <laughs> it's just like. It's it's heating up. The beginning is is real slow and turns a lot of people off. And then once it reaches full speed, it it goes. Oh yeah, I I experienced my first like tears welling up in my eyes, like oh god, which I was warned was going to happen a lot. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I've I've started up work as well. The school year is you know back in full swing. We're on a regular schedule now. Uh, it mostly feels normal. I had a kid or two out for COVID already, but it was just kind of like, hey, I've got to quarantine for a couple of days. And, and and that's all it was. It's it's not jumping through crazy remote hoops or anything, at least as of right now. Uh, and there's mostly normalcy. And the school is like starting to do like school betterment things. Uh, like we're going to have like during the school day clubs in an advisory period where we actually try to like talk to the kids about their own interests rather than just like our subject area stuff so i'm like really hopeful for a good year yeah that's progressive as fuck and i like it yeah hashtag just charter school things where you can do crazy things like that yeah that's awesome i'm going to get to run a gaming club during the school day guess what they're gonna learn more in that or some gen ed guaranteed well just saying. Yep. Yeah, that's a great use of school time. Anyone have any uh, anything else for the intro section before we uh, go ahead and move on? 
do you want to talk about D&D for another 10 minutes? Because <laughs> I'm ready for I, I mean, this is only 11 minutes of an intro. <laughs> like, I, I can talk about the giant sack of dice I just bought and the tackle box I bought to organize them. Oh, very nice. Uh, yeah. Let, let's let's skip that, because I also have a lot to say about the dice I own, and, and let's just not do it. <laughs> okay. Bryant will fall asleep over there on us. I, I just want to pause, side tangent. While Phil and I were bouncing back and forth about D&D, Bryant on camera literally leaned back in his chair, slowly took his glasses off, wiped his brow and eyes with the back of his arm really dramatically, and then put his glasses back on. <laughs> and I was like, okay, maybe we should move this up. It wasn't about that. I'm just old and tired. I, I know. That was such like a uh, a 30-year-old thing to do, like someone in their 30s. Like, I do that all the time. But it was just funny that it happened while we were having this two-sided conversation. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm at the point where I could talk about D&D for an hour real easy right now because I'm at the inquisitive, like, ooh, what is this stage where I don't quite know how everything works yet? And then I end up, like, wasting an hour just, like, reading D&D lore or something like that. Nice. Uh, I just didn't have a whole lot to contribute to uh, D&D or school talk other than the fact that uh, a band that I really like just released an album and they were like taking photos with the album in front of like a bookshelf or whatever. And the back of the bookshelf was all just like image comics like Invincible next to Dungeons uh, Master's Guides and stuff like that. I thought that was pretty cool. No magic cards. They did have some like showcase Yu-Gi-Oh cards, but I don't want to talk about those. Fair enough. So uh, go check out Foxing if you're interested. All right. Um, so for the last of the businessy stuff, uh, thank you to uh, Matt Hackbert and Henry Korkutz for supporting the podcast via donations, as always. Those go towards paying our editor at Force of Will, who does fantastic work for us. At Force of Phil. Did I say Will again? You did. It's so hard. It's just the words start coming out. I mean, it's not like it's your name or anything. At Force nah, of Phil is one of the best Twitter handles among Magic Twitter, and I will not have it slandered here on the yeah. on the cast. All right. Um, speaking of the cast, getting meta for a second, our next episode is going to be a mailbag episode. Um, so if you have any questions that you want to see answered on the cast or any topics that you want us to briefly talk about, um, please send that to us in one way or another. You can hit us up on Twitter. You can hit us up uh, via our website's form. You know, if you're uh, friends with one of us or you're in one of our discords, feel free to throw us messages that way as well. And uh, we'll put together uh, just sort of an assortment of whatever you, the listeners, want to hear about. If you don't know how to find us, uh, my YouTube channel and I know all of us do this, but uh, any one of our YouTube channels, any video description will have all of our links. I have uh, an email, the Twitter, uh, Discord links, like all that is there. Uh, we're very easy to find. Yup. All right. Um, so let's talk magic updates and then we'll uh, get into the episode itself. Phil, you were on theepicsfirm.com. Yeah, I know. And not for death and taxes this time. Shocked Pikachu face. Um, so I put together an article on the Madness versus TES matchup for Bryant's website. Um, it, it kind of talks about how Madness is a, a little bit of a different deck than a lot of other legacy decks. And the general strategy of why sideboard when you can get them dead, idiot, uh, is, is very much present in this article. Um, it's, it's an interesting read. If you've been enjoying the Madness deck on my channel, I encourage you to check it out. You know, the... The article is mostly about the matchup with TES specifically, 
but there's a lot of things that are more generally helpful in there. Plus, it's a short read. Yeah, I like your answers quite a bit for what it's worth. Yeah, because uh, I told people not to play Mindbreak Trap. Whew. Love it. All right. Um, as far as my end goes, I've been recording with a lot of interesting decks. The The big one that I want to let people know about is on August 30th, which is probably the Monday after this podcast comes out. I am going to have a video with a red-white Winota Stompy deck list. Um, it is spicy. Uh, it features Godo Bandit Warlord Ooh. as a way to cheat, like, attacking Cauldras into play. And it also has a way to get infinite combats. Uh, it's it's super fun. I, I lost to this player in a match, and I immediately messaged them and was like, Can I have your deck list? I need to record with this. I don't even know if they, they spoke English very well. But they just, like, sent me a link to their Twitter, posted the deck list for me. And then I Google translated their next status and they were like, so happy an overseas content creator that I watch just asked me for my deck list. And it was just like, oh, very nice. Nice. Although I hate Winota. She ruins my pioneer dreams. <laughs> the Lotus Field deck just cannot beat Winota. Winota is a really stupid magic card that was involved in. I think it was banned right before one of the pro tours I played in. Maybe not. I don't know, but I was testing heavily for something where Winota was just a huge part of the metagame, and they banned some... Uh, oh, they banned the, the stupid uh, uh, control magic human, the steal a permanent human. That's what they banned to nerf Winota. Agent of Treachery? Yeah, because that, that was in the uh, the Luck of Fires deck, and it was the big payoff in the Winota deck. Like That metagame was busto. I won $1,000 in an arena open playing that Luck of Fires deck, though. <laughs> I just, like, crafted it two nights before, laddered a few times, and was like, this deck's fucked. <laughs> and then picked up a G with it. It was pretty nice. Then they banned it, and I got my wild cards back. Arena. It's so lucky. It's a really weird card in Legacy, because the ceiling on the card is, is, is fucking game-ending. Just absolutely stupid. And the floor is, I paid four mana and did nothing. Uh, Dies to blue elemental blast can't be that good. All right. Wow, says the burning wish wizard. <laughs> got him. Oh, got him. Bang bang. All right, burning wish wizard. Right. You've got some top eights recently. Tell us about them. So, uh, five color the epic storm. Orm's chance back, along with, you know, prismatic ending. Probably one of the best cards in legacy right now. We'll talk about that later. But uh, have a video with that. And then I've been playing some vintage recently. Uh, I qualified, or I top-aided a Vintage Showcase Challenge with P.O., and then I played in the Showcase Qualifier with not P.O., Brian. We'll talk about this later as well, but I cut the card P.O. from the deck and just played P.O. The Power 9 convinced me to just play some Hole Breachers instead, and it was amazing. So, we'll talk more about that later. I'm really excited to just, like, fawn over 4x Hole Breacher in a deck. Oh! So excited. Yeah, I mean, that, that gets me going, too. <laughs> and Phil is a filthy white wizard. And he's like, for all breacher, tell me more. Yeah, I, I, I want to talk about some vintage this episode. I've, I've been playing a bit. Other than that, uh, I received a box today with 250 mini token packs in them. On a bunch of my videos, I kept on just getting this comment like, hey, you sold out of mini tokens. When are your next ones coming in? And I had to be like, ah, oh, it's going to be a week. It's going to be a couple weeks. You know, I have to make them. I have to ship them. Well, the company just like express delivered them to me because I paid so much for all of them. They're here. I posted about them. So if you're listening to this and you want to grab some slime time, some Ave tokens, 
that they're in there. Go grab them. Theepicsworm.com slash shop. Awesome. Nice. So, Brian, what's up on your end? I My magic intake or output, depending on if I'm a content creator or a player, I guess, has decreased significantly since I went back to work. But one thing that I did do, this was on my calendar before I realized what my start date was. This was actually the night that I had gone back to work. I was on the Mental Misplay stream. It's a CEDH live paper magic stream on Spelltable. I had never played on Spelltable before. I built all these EDH decks over quarantine, and I finally got to play one in paper, and it was a lot of fun. And it was just great to play paper magic. I played with the Hermit Druid, who's just an awesome CEDH advocate and content creator who I've been interacting with for a while. He helped me out with a few of my CEDH and EDH projects on my own channel. And it it got it felt like early 2000s magic in that this this is not going to appeal to everyone but anyone who is grinding in like the the mid i guess mid to late 2000s will appreciate this like there was this competitive like shit talk borderline edgelord borderline toxic sort of like just thing this energy that every magic player had every pt grinder anyway of just like you know get fucked nerd and like not as a joke <laughs> like uh like everyone was just like had like unflattering nicknames for each other and like while that is bad and i don't miss it in the culture we got a little taste of that uh the the host of mental misplay alan he brought uh one of his boys on uh from brooklyn and this guy just had that attitude and it just brought out the jersey in me like it's been 10 years since i lived in new jersey but i i just like we had this stack where like he was casting i cast a wheel or something he countered it i forced he pyroblast my force and i deflecting swat which is misdirection but it's free if you control a commander uh i deflecting swatted his pyroblast and i was like in my head i was just like navigating the stack and i was like okay uh kill this creature and he was like whoa 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 mr legacy this is a modal spell you can't switch it from a spell to a creature you should know this if anyone should know this and i was just like whatever then you're right my bad counter your own fucking wheel of fortune and he's like no no that's not a blue spell and i was like read your fucking card and like we had this like <laughs> and it it was fun like it was in good spirits but it was in that like we are at this level together and we are gonna butt heads about it and we're gonna like smile and like gg at the end and like it just got into that fun banter that uh i have a small taste for in my old age Gen generally it's not i don't need to see that but it was fun to get into that a little bit so it was a really good energy uh bryant you'll appreciate this i had this the one game i won i think we played six games i won one of them i had a breach line where i was playing uh ishai jessica which is a uh basically a delver deck with control kills or with uh combo kills mostly resolving revolving around underworld breach and i had control of the game for like three or four turn cycles but i felt it slipping because you're playing against three people and eventually you run out of gas and I was like, I know you're all empty now. I can't get through to kill anyone, but I have Final Fortune, the red, red, take an extra turn, then you lose card mm -hmm. in my hand. I had Breach in my hand. I had a Narset in play with three counters, and I had get Taxi and Probe in my graveyard with six cards. And I was like, I don't think it's going to get better. Final Fortune, take my draw step, activate Narset, cast Breach, Probe, Probe, and the last Probe found mystical tutor but i was out of cards in my graveyard so 
I used my commander, Jessica, who is her, she has minus X deal X to any number of target permanents. I killed two of my own creatures with her, I minus two killed two of my own creatures and then chose not to put her into the command zone to put the three cards to probe one more time in my graveyard and then got the mystical tutor, found brain freeze, last three cards, draw brain freeze, then Roth. And the chat was like out of their minds and rooting for me and I'm just glad that happened on camera. Like it, it just was awesome magic that I, that experience was just really good for me, uh, having just played into that my camera awesome. for, for a year and a half without like other people. So, that was a really great thing. I've been told, and I'm not someone that plays a whole lot of CDH, but I've been told that like breach and the doomsday deck are just like two of the best things you can be doing. So I'm not shocked that your breach deck won. Well, I mean, the doomsday decks won most of the games. I mean, it's not Doomsday, but Thassa's Oracle, not necessarily Doomsday, but mm-hmm. like the the other guy, I forget his name. I uh, I feel like it's like Gorman. It's like kind of an unusual name, but uh, he he won our first game. He was on the play and he was just like end of turn, dark ritual tainted pact. And we let the pact resolve. And he's just like, he's like, uh, not ready to stop yet. Not ready to stop yet. You know what? I'll stop with one card left in my deck. And we're all like, oh, God damn it. And his hand was just like Cavern Oracle. <laughs> and it just got turned to. Well. Yep. Another game, he was like, end a turn in Tomb, put Dockside Extortionist in my graveyard, Shallow Grave. I have seven mana now. <laughs> You're all dead. Uh, like, the, the black combo decks are really messed up in that format. And I learned a lot having to actually play against them. Uh, two of the three games he won, I decided to like play a Soul Ring or a Mana Vault on turn one. And then just died with like Flusterstorm or Miscast in my hand. I was like, oh, okay, I'm playing this format wrong. Power level is high. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. I think you would like it if you tried it. But that's a lot of Japanese foils you're going to have to buy. Yeah, definitely. So one thing that I've experienced, and I'm sure you two have as well, is uh, sometimes the CEVH people will try to play in a legacy local. And they're like, oh, my Tainted Pact Oracle deck will be fine. It's like the most broken thing in CDH, and that doesn't, it just doesn't translate over to Legacy, and they're always so defeated. Yeah, uh, I, I posted a screenshot with um, of Doomsday, or no, I was playing uh, Peer into the Abyss Storm, that's what it was. I posted a screenshot of uh, Peter Storm, and Hermit Druid replied to my screenshot. He's like, wow, I forgot you guys get four Dark Rituals. <laughs> like, yeah, we do. And four dazes and four forces. Four force of negations if you're feeling like really spiteful for some reason. Yeah, if you're really There's a lot of ways lose. to say no. Yep. I actually have a, a EDH deck that I never play, but I updated it recently and I cut my alpha gauntlet of might and I just felt super guilty. I'm like now I just have this like super expensive piece of cardboard that I'll never use anyway, but put it back in the deck. It had a home Give it a reason. Yeah. I literally built Bosch. Uh, like that's the last deck I'm gonna build. I I think I mentioned it last cast, but like, in addition to like it being my brand and it like would make sense to have a Bosch deck, the thing the tiebreaker that was like, all right, fuck it, let's do it, was that I already owned exactly one Mishra's Workshop, and like I'm I'm not gonna get the other three to play Vintage at this point. Like that's like fifteen grand. They're like five k a piece and only Rising. So, like I could sell this, tuck it in a binder forever and sell it later. Or I could put it in an artifact theme EDH deck and found a home. So I'm in. It's sleeved up for the first time in its life. You weren't wrong, though. Part of the reason I've never built another EDH deck is that I just way too many Japanese foils to buy. I don't want to uh-huh. do that. 
Although I did have someone on a video recently comment with like, what kind of scumbags plays with Japanese cards? And it's just like, wow, that is a, that's a take for sure. <laughs> yeah. Imagine being so up your own ass that you don't understand that most of the world doesn't speak English. <laughs> Playing non-English cards is cheap. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And Wizards of the Coast out there releasing, you know, textless promos or they did a run where the the literal pre-release promo that everyone got was in Arabic, Hebrew. I think one was in like Sanskrit or something. Like they were just like completely Latin, off the rails. Ancient Greek. Yeah, Latin, ancient Greek. It's like, <laughs> yeah, imagine what a scumbag you'd be to play non-English cards. Yeah, that that questing Feldegriff, which is the ancient Greek one, is one of my favorite magic cards. Yeah, I had a Hebrew glory for a long time. I just had that was the card. It was just a crowning gem in my collection. I was just like, yes, I didn't understand it as a kid because I was in like I think seventh grade when Apocalypse came out, or no, it was Judgment. Mm -hmm. Judgment. Yeah, that card was in Judgment. So IPA OTJ. Yeah, after Apocalypse, so I was probably in like eighth grade, and I, I just like I didn't know it was a pre-release promo. I just saw a foil rare in a crazy language, and I was like, this is my favorite card now. I was about to describe it because I couldn't think of the name. Put it on the front page of my trade binder. And I was going yeah. to say White Genesis, and I was like, Brian will know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Glory. That card was a draft bomb. All right, do we want to talk about uh, Modern at all? Or uh, have we set up the episode? Because we're already doing it. This is going to be like, this is the rapid fire episode. We're just going to talk for a little while on a wide range of topics, which is what we're already doing. So we're already in it. Yeah, there's a there's a rough sorting method. We're going to talk about modern, then legacy, then vintage, and then a couple of generic topics to round out the episode. So I'll go ahead and read the first one because uh, this was one of my questions. So is is the food deck, is the Hell's Kitchen deck, whatever you want to call it, actually a viable modern deck? Because I saw a lot of hype around this strategy when it first popped up. Uh, lots of crazy Twitter picks. And I've played two leagues with this deck now with different versions, and I have not been impressed. So what's your two's take on this deck? Urza Saga is a hell of a card. I don't think the Asmo part of the deck is as good as people initially thought it was. Yeah, in the first couple of weeks when Modern Horizons 2 came out, this deck was hot because it was one of the earliest and most obvious adaptations or adoptions of Urza Saga. And when the rest of the format's not Saga-ing and you are, you're going to win. But as the rest of the format figured it out, like Hammer Time is the number one deck in Modern right now, and it's not close. And that's just a way better, way faster Urza Saga deck. And most of the decks are built to outvalue the food decks at this point, or just go over the top, or just ignore them, counter their payoffs. Like, I'm, I'm looking through the Modern metagame on MTG Goldfish right now, in order. Hammer Time, Five Color Elementals, Is It Tempo, Crashing Footfalls, Tron, Burn, Blue Red Control, which has a lot of the same cards as Is It Tempo in it, by the way. Living End, Grixis Lurus, uh, Four Color, so those are like the Omnath Control decks with Ren and Six, Orzhov Stoneblade, Scape Shift, Bant Control, Mill, Hardened Scales. That's the whole front page. There's not a food deck to be seen. So one thing that you pointed out, Brian, was that uh, you counter the payoff. The deck actually doesn't have that many payoffs. So if you're not running counters, a lot of the format's running discard. And if you could just take away one of the few payoffs, the deck sort of just crumbles. Yeah, or removal, like Lightning Bolt kills Asmaran. That's what you need. Like she'll, She might arrive, she gets a tutor up the book, might pick off a creature or two if there's food lying around. But like you pick, you pick that thing off, and then you move forward with your day. 
and it's kind of hard to find another one. That is the tutor spell. It is also the payoff spell. Even if you find the second one, you need a, a way to discard to get it into play. Like it, It's just uh, it's a lot to ask from a format that's ready for it. I just felt like the deck was working too hard to do nothing. Like, okay, you have a cookbook and an overchase daredevil, you have your two-card combo, and that doesn't win the game. Alright, you got an Asmore into play by cycling a Street Wraith, you get a cookbook, and Asmore isn't actually enough to just win a game of Magic on its own most of the time. You you still need more things to be making food, or like one removal spell kind of makes your everything fall apart. The The highest highs are crazy, like when you get cookbook going with Overchase Daredevil and you also have an Urza, like, yeah, the world is your oyster at that point, but so many things went right for you to make it to that stage of the game. Yeah, just was was not impressed with this deck and just wanted to make sure it wasn't me. Um, but the whole thing about, like, everyone else figuring out Urza Saga and more generally the power of other Modern Horizons 2 cards, um, it make, makes sense why this felt so bad to me by the time I actually got around to playing it. I recorded a video with Ad Nauseam in Modern. I think I won three games the entire league and two of them were against Phil on food. Like, and ad nauseum was just, it felt so awful because, like, your best draws were a turn four, and realistically, most games you were a turn five. Uh, against Phil, I did have a turn three. But, like, on average, your best draws were, like, a four. And I was just like, this deck is so bad, but at least I got to beat the food deck because the food deck couldn't even interact with me that meaningfully, which is just, like, another issue with the deck. Yeah, the the other major metagame shift that hurt food a lot is the other deck in the early days that saga obviously and easily slotted into was amulet and asmoran deals six damage to creatures left and right so if amulet can't stick their prime time they can't get that attack in they can't get those triggers like they're like the deck bricks just having asmoran in play with two foods bricked amulet that deck also not on that list of uh top 20 decks or top 12 15 i don't know how many lists decks i listed a minute ago but amulet not on them which is weird because, like, when the format first debuted, people were like, all right, Titan's the best deck. We're going to have to ban Urza Saga. It tutoring up uh, Amulet's just way too good. And now it's just like putting Hammer into play is the best thing you can be doing. But uh, Urza Saga is also responsible for that. So uh, that conversation might have different context, but might still be the conversation. Though, I looking at the modern metagame, just look looking across the those top five decks, Hammer Time is a Saga deck. Five color elementals is just it's based on the the pitch elementals like solitude endurance like that's the the big upgrade from mh2 is it tempo that's a dragon's ridge channeler deck sometimes some builds have ragavan some don't crashing footfalls that's a shardless agent deck and then tron that's just a powerful modern deck those are five completely different decks using completely different things from mh2 and that this might be a high power meta but it looks pretty healthy the second deck, the Elementals deck, only exists to prey on the first deck. Like, it's good because it beats the best deck. I was very surprised by how much that Elementals deck did. I faced it for the first time last week, and I was just like, okay, I don't I don't quite know what's going on here. And then all of a sudden I got hit by the Ephemerate, and it was like, oh, okay, I see where this is going. Yeah, Ephemerate really changes like the ephemerate plus the pitch elementals really changes every modern play pattern like if you're a creature deck you can't just cast your creature <laughs> into one white mana 
because like here's solitude blink and you're miles behind like you have to start sequencing like creature plus lightning bolt so at least it's just a at least i'm ahead on cards like they have to pitch so it's a two for one for them to solitude your thing they go for the flicker you bolt in response you get a three for two in the other direction rather than a two for or a three for two your way to kill two creatures like you just have to play really differently and in the early days of this format i thought that was completely broken and probably not okay but it turns out like if if your opponents are wise to the game they can flip your two for three into a three for two in the other direction assuming you can interact if you are yeah, sure say, if your deck's remotely playable <laughs> food for example um you just have to watch what happens on the other fucking side of the battlefield and just lose the flickers forever well phil perhaps i could interest you in one of the other 15 decks i just named oh i i really like the hammer time deck uh we're probably gonna come back to that in about two minutes um i have i i have warm and fuzzies about that deck all right so how how good is yorian in modern not who wrote this question are are we seeing yorian who's who asked Uh, this and why i i asked this I played against okay. Yorian three times in my last league, and it was three different Yorian decks. Yeah, I, I was just as surprised. I, I played, I, I think it was like Yorian Elementals, Yorian, I think, four-color control, and Yorian value blink permanence. And I was just like, what what is this? And then I played against a, like a Kahira Elementals deck too, and it was just like, okay, did I miss a memo, or did I have a weird league? I, I really like that blank deck. I played against it once. I saw Yorian and I was just like, okay, here here's this. And then you realize that like between all the blanks that are legal, all the elementals, all the pitch spells, like all the, the stuff that can happen, and not even just this wasn't an elemental shell. I it wouldn't surprise me if they had Kiki Jiki in this deck. Just all the things that I saw. And that that deck just that is totally my shit in a format like modern. Just value, 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 bury them eventually. I love that. So Modern feels a little bit like a Brewer's metagame. Whenever I play Modern Leagues for recording, I always face some sort of weird brew, and that doesn't really happen in Legacy anymore. Like, it happened a lot during, like, the Star City era back in 2013 to 2014, whenever. But it doesn't really feel like that anymore when you play Legacy Leagues. Modern still has that feel that Legacy had eight years ago. So I think sometimes you'll run into just more kooky decks because like it's affordable and the power level of the format's a little bit lower, which I also think has part of it to do. Like Legacy's just become so cutthroat due to having a greater card pool where Modern's card pool, you know, a little more shallow, I guess. So I think that's that plays a part in it. Yeah, I, I felt like in Legacy, playing a companion is kind of sketch most of the time like maybe it's it's good in like the current iteration of death and taxes for example but for most other decks it's just not worth it and in modern i think that line is is a lot blurrier Um, like so for example you know luris is is still legal there that's something that you're still allowed to do but even if you are playing luris like you might not even put it into your hand in the average game i i feel like the yorian deck building restriction is kind of high especially if you need to be answering like things from the is it tempo deck and hammer time like very consistently on turn one or two but a lot of people are messing around with it i mean if you have for like the same uh things that are applied to legacy death and taxes now like the same like math is going on brian talked about it in the last episode where it's like 
combo players just go for it. But they're playing twice as many hate cards in a uh, one third as large deck. So the math is actually worse for combo. Like that's happening in the Yorion decks too. Like you have four path to exile fourth solitude. Where in a 60 card deck, you might just have four paths. So you have eight answers instead of four. And the deck is only one third bigger. Uh, but there's twice as many things to draw. So the, it does end up pretty favorable. And if your plan is to have a bunch of value, like non-specific value, like if you're assembling any sort of specific engine, obviously you should be playing 60. But if your plan is to just make the game go along and get two for ones off ETB triggers, Yorin makes a lot of sense to just have in there because it'll go like it, it will show up. Since Phil touched upon it, I would just like to say a long time ago, I mentioned how when Gitaxian Pro was banned, my win rate dropped against death and taxes because I it allowed you to have this free information of how to sequence your cantrips, how to mulligan, all that sort of stuff. Um, well, I guess less how to mulligan, but like it just let you knew how to play the game at a free cost. Ever since these death and taxes decks have come around with Yorian, I've gotten that giant boost in win rate against DNT in game number one again. Because I now get to know that I should mulligan hands with Veil of Summer in it. I know that I should mulligan to something super aggressive. And that cost is a real thing that I think people are just like disregarding completely. Because like my win rate in game one has gone up a lot. And now I'm winning more matches in general because I get to be on the play in game three. Where previously when the D&T decks were only 60, I was losing a lot more game ones. Yeah, the, the difference in between a companion in Legacy and a companion in Modern, like when I see Yorian in Legacy at this point, I'm like, okay, it's probably D&T. In Modern, if they're not on Loris, I'm like, okay, that's weird. Like, and like I'll, I'll limit it down. Like, what permanents would be in their deck if they're not playing Loris? It's got to be Omnath or Murktide Regent. Like, I, that's where my brain is. And that gives me a lot of information when you're not Loris. If you are Loris... Are you Hammer Time? Are you Burn? Are you Mill? Are you Grixis Control? Like, the list goes on. All of those are Luris decks, and seeing Luris barely even helps you make a mulligan decision. So, I think the next question is pretty interesting. Are there any modern decks that are strong enough that they should be ported to Legacy or vice versa? Think about uh, Dread Dragon Rage Chandler uh, style deck building. Uh, Marshall Arthurs showed up to a legacy local in Pittsburgh two weeks ago with rhinos, just cascade rhinos. Uh, he, uh, he messaged me that morning. He's like, Hey, are you going to Titan today? Do you have an Elvish spirit guide? And I was like, I, I should be a better friend than this, but yes, I do. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, <laughs> I guess I'm subsidizing it. You idiot. But like he apparently had grinded a bunch of moto leagues done like pretty well. Uh, the deck, it, it does explode and legacy has the spirit guides that modern doesn't have and you really can't just jump out there and cascade into shit and he, uh, he was so proud also of had blood moon in it so oh you've talked to him about it too he was so proud of his deck that morning he sent me photos like he's like it's so beautiful and i was like you're registering that and he's like i'm gonna crush today <laughs> so i don't know how he ended up doing but he was very happy with this deck it's definitely fun yeah he, he ended up getting, like, according to him, pretty unlucky. Um, I, I I mean, you sign up with a deck like that, I, I don't know how much you can complain about variants, but Marshall is extremely well-practiced with that kind of deck. His 
Eternal Weekend Vintage Top 8 was one of the early builds of Survival, back before that got, like, super focused. Uh, so he knows how to play Spewy Green decks in Broken Blue Fields, and I, I believe him if he says it's it's playable, but I wouldn't register it, but you go off, man. It feels a lot like the old Cascade into uh, Velky deck. It's just now your payoff is two four four rhinos, and the question is, is that good enough? It could be. Uh, I'm just... I'm not sure. Yeah, and how good is the deck at reloading? Like, how often do you, like, turn one Charlotte's Agent, turn two Pylon Outburst? Like, that's a wave of stuff that most Legacy decks will struggle with. But two Rhinos? I think we can handle that as a format in general. So, one of my issues was when trying to play the Shardless Rhinos deck in a fair way, it's really hard to try and find the time to brainstorm and successfully set up the cascade card um i feel like back in like the the legacy of like the scg open era or maybe the the classics whatever when they had like sunday specific legacy events i i feel like the the shardless bug style stuff was pretty good and you very regularly found time to set up brainstorm into an ancestral and now i feel like legacy puts a lot of pressure on you um again with cards like urza saga and and ragavan and dragon rage channeler uh, requiring either specific answers or committing a bunch of resources that to them to answer them and it's just hard to set up that card in a fair way most of the time so you're just spinning the wheels and hoping you hit the right thing well with marshall's deck marshall wasn't playing brainstorm or ponder it was uh truly just like three casting costs and up so he always hit the rhino which is another style of deck building that you can choose to have no sculpting there yeah, he, he was not playing Shardless Bug. He was playing Shardless Gruel. Like, here it comes. I guess there had to be blue in the deck if he has Shardless Agent, but it's not for cantrips. There, there's only one hit. And gotcha. his other, the rest of the deck was like Blood Moon and other fucked up three drops. Okay, then I, then I like that strategy better than what yeah, I, I was I trying to that. do. Yeah, uh, eight forces as well, force of vigors on the board. It was very pitch-centric. All right. Um, as far as other things that I think could be ported, um, I think Brian wrote this in as well, but my, my thought was on hammer time. Like, when the hammer comes down, you you die in one to two turns. And, you know, if, if, if that thing can happen in modern, it can happen in legacy as well. Um, I'm not familiar with how much work they put in on it, but uh, I know Dom Harvey did put some amount of work into a legacy hammer time variant. Yeah, I faced them... Uh, playing for top 16 of a challenge dom snuck in under 30 sec or 30 second yeah uh, so dom's list was published but you can go check that out and i've talked to a lot of people about it and the way that the modern deck is often described is it's weight infect where you don't really lose to plague engineer not that plague engineer is seeing a lot of play anymore but that seems like the style of deck where a lot of infect enthusiasts and legacy can maybe try hammer time you know the death and taxes cousin yeah um and we kind of referenced this in the question itself, but, you know, when Dragon Rage Channeler was spoiled, the first thing we all were thinking about was, like, hey, you can you can bobble. And it took a little while, but we did see a lot of the, the modern technology going into Legacy, so I think that is a great example of something where that has already happened, and Unholy Heat from Modern is starting to slip into play in Legacy as well. And damn, that card is that card is good. Been very impressed by that card in modern and 
It's been pretty good in Legacy too. Yeah, it's the magmatic sinkhole that we wish it was. Exactly. Yes. I had a conversation with somebody over the weekend where they're like, "Where did Chain Lightning go?" And I said, "Look at Unholy Heat." Yeah. Have you ever just like killed a Jace that's that plus? It's like Jace plus. It's oh. dead. Nice try. <laughs> or or just like uh, Yorian. Oh, kill that for one mana. It's just like some fat shit. It's just like Tarmogoyf. It's dead. Four or five Tarmogoyf. It's gone. Well, that goes back to something that, uh, Brian, that I know that you've talked a lot about on this podcast, where the mid-range war, if you're blue-red Delver, the way that you beat it is going bigger, and traditionally that would mean Rug and Termogoyf. That no longer applies the same way anymore, because Unholy Heat's just like, yeah, whatever, idiot, kill your Goyf, swing. So the uh, the mid-range war might have to find a different way of fighting back. All right, so our last modern question here, you know, you, you've got a modern PTQ tomorrow. What what deck are you bringing? My answer is easy. Lotus Breach. I, yeah, you're gonna. Bryant's gonna Lotus Breach. I will probably play Grixis Lurus because that's just everything I want to be doing in Magic. I I don't know if it's particularly well positioned anymore. I was really excited about it a month ago, but that's just lots of decisions, lots of grind. You're gonna draw lots of cards. You're gonna play long games. That that's what I'm here for. I would be playing the Hammer Time deck. Uh, you know, I, I think that is a deck that would play well to the, the skills that I have. And I just also think the deck is objectively very scary. It's very good. I got I, I think I got turned two'd in modern and it's just like, what the fuck is this like? Yeah, that that deck is like Hammer Time is so frustrating to play against because it's like the you just have to guess. Like If you've ever talked to like a soccer goalie. Uh, like on a penalty kick you basically just have to guess left or right and jump in that direction when they kick the ball <laughs> it's just like <laughs> sometimes you're just wrong and like sometimes you're like you fight really hard over zagarda's aid and they're just like second zagarda's aid god damn it and then like sometimes you let the aid resolve they hammer you like bolt in response to the aid trigger they just have a second hammer now you're taking like 22 and your burn spell got fizzled it's just like damn it nice six card hand you maniac that deck is also terrifying because like there's just this lurus looming so like you fight your way through the initial bullshit and it's like okay it's turn six i play lurus i get back my critical piece and it's just like ah yeah just like that turn five pick up lurus turn six lurus stoneforge mystic get hammer go and they might even have like a zagarda's aiden play already and so that hammer is just plus 10 plus 10 at will with that sixth mana. Ugh. Disgusting. And they're a saga deck. Like you also just have to fight through like five five constructs some large amount of the time. It's just like construct, construct, get hammer. Good luck. Do I have a donation deck list that's a dealer's choice in my queue? Oh, I do. Alright, we're we're recording with that maybe oh, tomorrow. Yeah, it's hammer time. <laughs> nice. Alright, um, let's transition to talking about uh legacy then. Uh, so there were a lot of Twitter posts this weekend, uh, absolutely shitting on Blue Red Delver, uh, after a very, very bad showcase, uh, challenge. Uh, so I want to talk about that. So the, the, the loaded question is, how is Blue Red Delver's position in Legacy? Um, and I'll Phil, let you what is there to talk about? The best players on Magic Online met head-to-head in Brutal Combat in their quest for eternal glory, and Delver came up wanting. Like, what is there to say? It's not the meta monster that people think it is. Period. Look at the data. <laughs> right? 
right, so I'd guys? like to clarify that it's the sh- the showcase challenge qualifier, which is the smaller event, the one that was only twenty seven people. Just the showcase challenges are the bigger ones that are like two fifty. So I just want to call that out. Oh, thank you. So the 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 narrative surrounding this event was it only put up two of eight decks. How can it be that good? And had a thirty percent win rate with two of eight in the top eight. In the same day, in the normal challenge, it also put up two of eight. I think uh, sometimes it's not good to look at, you know, a very small sample size within a contained expected field, perhaps. But uh, what do you two think? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, small small event. If you ex- expect Delver, you know, you can make your your adjustments to try and beat the current build of Delver, and then Delver will change two cards the next week and be ready for the things that you did for this week, and the cycle repeats. Blue-Red Delver is still an extremely strong, extremely powerful, extremely consistent deck, you know. Don't don't let one, you know, quote-unquote bad event where Delver had a very bad win percentage just change your mind and think like, oh, Delver's bad, Legacy is saved. I will say this, there was three death and taxes in that event, and they all did particularly well. I think a big part of that is Solitude, being the that extra source to plowshares against Delver, and perhaps like Delver just adjusts, like Phil said, in the next week or so against D&T, and all of a sudden D&T has the 30% win rate. Yeah, and as we all know, there's no cards that exist, <laughs> sorry, that can hate out death and taxes. <laughs> cries in dread of night yeah ever since uh david lance moved into my region i don't know if he's been here the whole time or like i i didn't recognize him till uh he won eternal weekend and like we started interacting on twitter but he's been at all my local legacies lately he he lives just across the state line in ohio and he only plays Orion taxes and he has an extremely positive record against me in those events and you know like Maybe it's time for uh, a plague engineer. Maybe it's time for Dread of Night. Maybe it's time to go that direction. If there's one person in the room who can beat me and they're on mono white all the time, let's do it. Yeah, I, I'm not sure why exactly, but I don't think Death and Taxes has quite picked up the bullseye yet. I, I think everyone is so hyper focused on a, a couple of consistently top performing decks you know the the blue red delver the the just guy rag still decks which are now dropping the standstill portion i think people are so laser focused on those things that death and taxes is just kind of slipping under the radar despite you know a handful of of good death and taxes pilots just putting up killer results uh, pretty consistently i think it's less that it's under the radar and more that there is no splash damage if you want to target death and taxes, you got to play like the dread of knights, the plague engineer, the massacre, like sulfur elemental caster. Like I, yeah, sulfur elemental. Like you got to reach for that weird shit that just doesn't do anything against Delver. doesn't do anything against Bant. Like, is there a card that just like hammers DNT and Bant at the same time? I don't think so. Nothing immediately comes to mind. Right. Yeah, exactly. A, a lot of things that would kill multiple creatures out of death and taxes just like does nothing against a fucking Merktide regent. And exactly. yeah, death and taxes may be shielded by by that sort of effect. Yeah, the metagame's in a place where main deck pyroblast is a choice that smart people are making. Like it's a good time to be mono white. That's one thing that I expect. Just be careful with your Yorian. 
when we look at the results from that event, I bet there was a lot of main deck pyroblasts that uh, were not very successful against the NT. Of note, though, for the Yorian builds, that does have one very important target. Yeah, <laughs> watch out for that guy. Alright, um, so this is a question that came from my Discord when I was uh, searching for things to put in the show notes. So, kind of one of the things that, you know, supposedly defined legacy of for a long time was that small incremental advantages over time just just really mattered you know the the really talented players could always find a way to to pull ahead and some people now feel that like fire design and some of the power level of the the modern horizons 2 cards are making it so that that's that's not as true anymore um so overall is legacy still about small incremental advantages over time or are we seeing just more hammers and like you have to answer this or you die like you have to have the right card at the right time what are your thoughts on that well that's kind of tricky uh, i mean obviously uh discard is the worst it's ever been like if you are playing discard in your deck your deck can probably win that turn like the grixis control style like take this map out the next six turns kind of thing doesn't exist because top decks are just too good cards like uh Uro just change the pace of any game on a dime but like what how are we defining incremental advantage because cutting delver from delver in favor of ragavan and dragon's rage channeler ragavan is a delver that doesn't hit as hard but generates incremental advantage dragon's rage channeler is a delver that takes a little longer to get going but generates incremental advantage like our are we just tacking incremental advantage onto our threats now? And now that's a fire design instead of an incremental advantage engine? Like, what exactly are we talking about here? Are we talking about specifically, like, Karn the Great Creator? Like, boom, the GG1 card? Like, where, where, what's the conversation and how are we defining incremental advantage before we talk about if that is a dead strategy? I, I think what the person had in mind is it used to be like, Hey, if if you're the the skilled player, you can do all these little things over time that that give you an edge. That that sort of thing. That still very much exists. Yeah, I I would for like double down on my uh mostly rhetorical question. Or I guess it wasn't rhetorical. That was a real question. Like it, like Dragon's Rage Channeler gives a good player more decisions over the course of the game. Like the things that made the the great delver players great is they knew exactly what to do with their cantrips and now they're seeing four cards instead of three on that ponder they're seeing four cards instead of three on that brainstorm like uh expressive iteration like that's a card like do you jam it on turn two hope to find a zero or do you always wait until you have a land drop available like do you wait till turn four so you could play it with your land drop available and play around days like a lot of really good decisions are being made on how to maximize incremental advantage and the Argument from like the Renin Six or Oko era is just like, okay, yeah, that card just comes into play and changes the rules. There's a new mini game that you're going to lose very quickly if you can't answer this one permanent. And there's not a lot of that going on in Legacy right now. I think that part of this question stemmed from the Twitter discussion about the change in play patterns because a lot of people were reminiscing about the era in which Predict mattered more. Um, that sort of thing, where there's this great battle between Predict Miracles and Storm and this one match. The, the whole thing was very romanticized, and people were saying that Magic was better 
when it was on the stack and not the battlefield and all this other stuff. But like magic was always going to change. Brian, I know, has been playing this game a very long time, too. And I remember a time before the time that they're even reminiscing about. I remember Werebear. And I have fond memories of Werebear being outclassed by Tarmogoyf and then Werebear disappearing. The game was always going to change and new cards are always going to push out your favorite old card. Like I don't play Flame Tongue Kabu anymore, even though I love it. Like these changes will always happen, but like recently there's been a lot more of the, well, I should still get to play with my cards from 2016 conversation happening. And I just don't agree. Uh, sometimes your cards just get outclassed. Like dress isn't good anymore. Find the next thing instead of complaining about how your old favorite thing doesn't work. Or how about this? It's legacy. Go ahead, play it. Like uh, you are still allowed to play your favorite cards. Yeah, Werebear is going to get embarrassed by Tarmogoyf most of the time, but if it brings you that much joy, if so, like the emotional cost it takes to bitch about not being able to play Werebear anymore on Twitter, like you could suffer that same misery by just getting your Werebear beat by Tarmogoyf in a tournament and you have the joy of playing Werebear to go with it. Like, I, I feel like this is wasted energy. Like, you could do this thing. Obviously, it's not as good, but like a lot of people do show up and with the deck they want to play and they understand that they're probably not going to win the tournament with it and i mean are you a spike or are you uh on the casual side and i feel like and this is a, a real question like i'm not just using casual as a uh, derogatory statement like there's a lot to like about casual magic and some people just treat their tournament entry fee as their entertainment budget. Like you spend 12 bucks to go see a movie, you spend 12 bucks or 10 bucks to play FNM. And like at the end, that money's gone and you had an experience. Not everyone is there to win. They're there to play four rounds of magic. And if you want to sleeve up 2010 rug Canadian threshold pre Delver, you want your wear bears and your burning tree shamans, like go nuts, have fun. But like don't complain when the spikes beat you. I don't know what to tell you. I agree quite a bit, but also uh, something that I find with legacy players in particular is that they're so tied to the format of legacy. There's a ton of great formats out there. There's pre-Innistrad, there's middle school, you could play Pauper. Pauper is very much legacy light. I like Pauper quite a bit. There's other formats that you could try that might actually be more enjoyable for you. Don't t don't tie your anchor to legacy and drag everyone else with around you down because you want to play this one particular style of magic. Yeah, every every time I get burnt out on legacy, the best thing I have done for myself is played another format. And I, I am like one of the legacy guys like it is very much attached to my name and identity. But like getting out and playing vintage during the companion hell era of legacy, for example, was awesome and exactly the thing i needed i saw a, a tweet a couple weeks ago that it, it was something to the tune of i'm gonna step away from twitter which will make you think magic is bad and play magic which will make you think magic is good and just detach from the discourse just think about like the the type of person who would create a twitter account get into magic twitter that is probably a person who is either trying to sell something or just has opinions to share. The number of people who are not on Magic Twitter vastly outnumbers those of us who are. <laughs> and like, you stroll into the LGS, you sit down at a table, be like, hey, what, what format do you play? The answer is going to be Commander. And like, th this is sort of 
this was a revelation to me. I, I built these commander decks that I keep mentioning. I have my Corval deck that I think is powerful, but there's no two-card combos. Like I, I, I built this to be a friendly casual deck. Then I realized that just having a deck with like optimized synergy is still too good for an LGS table with randos. So I built Bosch, which is just mono-red artifacts. And that's still miles ahead, light years ahead of what people at the LGS are doing. It's literally just like, me and my brother bought three boxes together. These are the cards we own. And we pulled basics out of the land box. And we sleeved up a hundred of them. And that person is having the time of their fucking life. And you're out here with your underground seas like, I want to play Plague Engineer again. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, there's a big world and you're not the center of it. Every once in a while, I... I get humbled by like some of my kids who come and ask my, my students who come and ask me questions about magic. And they're just like, Hey, can you take a look at my flyer deck? And I'm like, yeah, I sure can. And it's just, you, like some people don't even use the same terminology, like the regular, you know, quote unquote magic terminology and such, because like, they're just, they're just playing with the cards. They don't, they don't know all the rules. And you, you forget that when you get real deep into the grind. Two memories come out to me when you said they use different terminology. One of them, more recently, at a Legacy tournament, there was a group there. They must have all played together at some... I had never seen them pre-COVID, so they must have met each other or bought into Legacy over the break or the quarantine. And when they would use a fetch land, they would say sync. That was their verb to say they were activating their fetch land. Like, not crack, not sack, not fetch. It was sync. And four dudes in the room were doing that. And I've never heard that before, but all four of them were just confidently like, I'll sync this. And like, clearly just someone at their store, someone they look up to, decided that that was a word they were going to use. And these like three kids heard it and they latched onto it. And they just think that is a word that people say, which it just isn't. But I knew I knew what they meant. I was just like, yeah, okay, sure. Sync it. <laughs> and the other one I think of was... uh. A limit, a team limited Grand Prix in Washington D.C. I teamed with Chris Dagno and Alex Bastecki, and we ended, we lost playing for uh, like eleven and three, like whatever the Pro Tour record was. We were dead for top four on Breakers, but we were playing for a Pro Tour invite in the final round, and we ended up losing it. But our only loss on day one were to these three casuals who were clearly like just left their house for the first time in twelve years, and. All three of them, when they were done with their turn, would say, the table is yours. And like, extend their hand, like, palm up in my direction. Be like, the table is yours. And and like, they just thought that was a normal thing to do. And like, now to the, to this day, like, if we suffer a tilting loss, I'll, we'll just say to each other, the table is yours. I love that. Like, like, those things just happen. Like, those people outnumber the people who are like, combing Sunday challenge data by a lot all right i have one more thing i want to say about incremental advantage over time um i want you to remember that there are a lot of legacy matchups right now that either go to time or go towards a player decking those games are long uh you know when you get like bant versus one of the other grindy decks for example like you are going to have time to showcase your skill are there going to be huge, you know, haymakers thrown from both sides of the table in the middle there? Yes, absolutely. But like, you will still have the chance to to showcase your your skill, showcase your ability, and uh, 
get some advantages over your opponents. The only haymakers left in the the Bant mirror, uh, I just want to say this because it's been on my mind, is Jace. Like not even not even like Teferi or Narset are haymakers anymore because you have prismatic ending. Like it, it's literally Jace, and only in game or like if there's a red splash, it's only in game ones, and, and like every other card can be answered. Every other thing, like the game will just go so long. In Bant mirrors, I start endurancing myself on the first endurance like i don't wait till the late game where there's 25 cards and start like i'm not worried about there being six cards for uro it, it's not gonna stick anyway like just start endurancing myself plan for the decking game and every card gets answered uro's not gonna stick nothing that costs three or less mana is gonna stick jace the mind sculptor is the only thing left that's gonna actually crack open uh, a control mirror like that or at least a bant mirror and that's that was a huge revelation for me on how i was gonna build bant uh, any any question I had left over about whether splashing red is correct was just like oh yeah obviously I get I can prismatic ending for four in the main deck and then I get the rebs out of the sideboard and that's just you got to beat Jace because you can't otherwise there is no pressure. I do think that's one thing that that not enough people are doing right now is playing cards that go above prismatic uh, ending. Like their cards are just everywhere right now and as it should be like. I'm, our next thing is going to be like what cards are underplayed right now and it's like still prismatic ending but you should be looking to beat prismatic ending in any way you can and you're like going bigger right now just makes a lot of sense i had an acquaintance who i don't think follows my content very closely uh isn't on twitter they're just like a facebook friend who's sort of lingered for a decade or so that i met at some legacy event and he messaged me last weekend. He was like, hey, check out this deck. I have a local legacy. What do you think? It was it was a shark still variant. And there were four plow, one prismatic ending. And I was like, I could tell that you're not looking at lists right now. <laughs> like, I, I would go the other way and work my way up on swords to plowshares. Like, prismatic ending is the money. Play more of that thing. So the next question that we've already kind of referenced is, on, on the cast, we've talked a lot about Carpet of Flowers in the past as this card that was just super underplayed, incredibly powerful, an awesome addition to any any sideboard. And some of my Discord peeps wanted to know, like, what, what's the new Carpet of Flowers? Because Carpet of Flowers is dead, because Prismatic Ending is just a one-mana answer to that now, so it doesn't just dominate the, the blue mirrors anymore. So unholy heat and prismatic ending. They should just see more play. <laughs> I don't know. Those were the two cards that I had in mind uh, with maybe an honorable mention to some more path to exile because it's something that can answer, you know, a Ragavan, a Dragon Rage channel or a card from Death and Taxes, a Murktag Regent um, relatively cleanly. I was talking to an ant player today and uh they were asking like what cards they should be playing in their board and how i felt about xanid swarm and i my honest feedback to them was like you shouldn't be playing permanents anymore just like carpet of flowers xanid swarm defense grid i told them that i had got grid as well all that stuff just needs to go like if it was last year's tech it's probably not good enough anymore that's how big of the game that like prismatic ending has changed it you just can't be relying on like stuff from the past like spells right now are where it's at yeah, the Delver decks recently picked up Court of Cunning, which feels like Carpet used to feel, where it's just like, oh shit, this thing. Uh, in a Delver mirror, it's a little risky, but like against anyone who's trying to grind, against uh, any of the Rag Saga decks, against Bant, especially if you turn two that thing, you do the Deathrite Shaman game and like turn one Rag, turn two Court of Cunning, the game is over. 
Like that's a card I've been really impressed with that it feels like Carpet of Flowers used to. And I don't know if more people should be playing it or if it only belongs in Delver and only for certain matchups, but that's felt really good. And I have also seen a lot of the smart people or just even random people posting like, hey, I top four the Legacy Challenge. I'm seeing one to three Shark Typhoon in so many fair blue decks. And I think people are finally realizing that card is fucking dope. All right. So the next one is, are there any overlooked or undervalued legacy decks right now? You know, the the sleeper pick sort of situations. I wrote Doomsday and it's not like a super like shocking pick. It was a deck that everyone thought was like maybe the second best deck last month and has like fallen a little bit out of favor. But quietly, Kai Sawatari has just been on this like dominant heater every single weekend, top fouring a challenge, one of the two of them with Doomsday. And Doomsday's just like consistently performing in this its worst matchup is Delver, and it's still performing in the Delver metagame. The deck is very good. And there's so many decks out there that just can't beat it. Like Death and Taxes has a lot of its combo matches down now because they're playing three Deafening Silence and two Mind Break, but those cards just don't interact very well with Doomsday. I actually started playing Doomsday at my locals. Last week my opponent went turn one Deafening Silence, turn two Thalia on my turn four, I tapped three underground seas in the basic island to cast Doomsday, and then one on my turn five. Um, it's just like it's not very difficult to do with Doomsday. And they sh- should be playing something like uh, Phil. Tell me how to say the first word again. Takali. Takotli. Takotli Honor Guard. Uh, that card, Doomsday plays a single card in their 75 that can beat it. And if you set it up with the Mother of Runes, that card is lights out. They run a single Fatal Push. So this card is better than Hushbringer because it doesn't die to Massacre. It's a 1-3, and it just stops a multiple Thassa's Oracle plan as well, unlike something like Dress Down. Not that DNT would play Dress Down anyway, but just in general. Uh, Torpor Orb effects, or Torpor Orb itself, incredibly good um, against Doomsday. And just people aren't giving Doomsday dedicated hate, so the deck is running free. I think it's probably going to... Dress down, yeah, it's baby. It's going to continue to be one of the three best decks in the format. Yeah, just taking a small step back to cards that I think could be seeing more play, Dress Down is one of them. Obviously, if your deck relies on creatures to do stuff, Dress Down is a liability. You can't play it in your own Urza Saga deck, but just I've been so impressed with Dress Down as a card in Bant, uh, and it just has that Torpor Orb ability against Doomsday as well, which is super cool. I'm I'm super impressed with Doomsday. That is a deck that I have like medium serious aspirations to really get proficient with. I think that especially in my locals where everyone knows I'm on Bant and they're all ready for me, like just showing up with Doomsday and playing it proficiently could result in a pretty clean spike. And I, I just want that in my stable. Uh Kai Sawatari, who you mentioned. Get ready for this, by the way. This probably should have been in my magic updates, but I have been sponsored to battle Kai in a five-match set, Bant versus Doomsday, for $100 a match. Ooh. A generous donor put up $500 to make this happen. Yep. Uh, we're actually recording that this Thursday night, so we're probably recording it the night before this cast goes live. I think he's live streaming it, and then I'll do some basic editing and drop it probably the following Monday. But yeah, we're we're paying for playing for Benjamin. Yeah, that, is, that is hot. Um, I, I will also be on the Doomsday train. Yeah um some somebody threw me some money and was like hey 
will you play two doomsday leagues and i well okay that's not how the story went the story was hey will you play five doomsday leagues and i was like whoa hold on a minute that's a that's a big commitment and i i I fired back with two and then they uh they snapped off the payment um that's one of those decks that i've somehow never played despite it being such a thing just no one has ever donated for it um so I'm, i'm excited to get yelled at in the youtube comments while playing that one I was cold on that deck for a while just because it's so intimidating. Like, generally, as far as, like, the donation deck model goes, like, you need a a pretty solid base set of skills. Just like, okay, I see what's going on with this deck. Let's try it. And I'm usually playing it better in round five than I was in round one, or I learned some tricks or learned some rules interactions. But, like, you generally, you're playing magic. Doomsday is just such a different animal that it was intimidating to even approach. But it was eventually a donation deck. They were just like, hey, you're playing Doomsday this month for me. I was like, okay. And I think I've played it like five or six times now. And I have two more coming up in the queue. Just this week, I actually dropped the uh, the Stoneforge Mystic Doomsday deck from Marcus Ewald. That uh, It's just Doomsday in the main with 15 white sideboard cards. You just like cut your Doomsday combo, bring in Stoneforge Mystic and a bunch of weapons and prismatic endings. And you have That's a new dope. deck. Like That's a really cool deck. Yeah, pretty sweet. Uh, I'm not convinced that's better than just having 15 functional sideboard cards to help you resolve an, a Doomsday, but it's a cool thing you can do. But I'm really impressed with Doomsday, and I'm like five or six leagues in with it now, and I, I get the basic piles, and I'm starting to work on the advanced piles. I actually had a pile in this last video that I was like, my opponent had Narset, and a shitload of counter magic in their deck. I saw three Narsets in game two, and it was game three, and I was resolving Doomsday going into their third turn. And I was like, all right, I'm going to make a pile that doesn't lose to counter magic or Narset. And I did, but then their hand was like, Snapcaster, Snapcaster, for exactly like enough to just cheese damage across the board, because it was like a multi-turn line through the Narset, and they were able to exact like get me dead for Exaxes with the Snapcasters. Like, Damn it, I thought I did so good. Uh, yeah, tough deck. I uploaded one of the ugliest leagues that I've ever played with Vintage KCI. I had never played the modern deck Ooh. when it was legal. And Brian, you mentioned that usually by the end of your round five, you're playing the deck better than round one. I can honestly say that was not the <laughs> case for worse. me. I just could never, I could never figure out how the deck actually worked. Like I watched a video on how the loop works and then I went to go play it. And it's just like all that information had left my brain. Uh, I was just like, I won a single match and I won by attacking with scrap trawlers. So my, I have a quick case, modern KCI story. This was like the last, one of the last events KCI was legal. I played it in a team modern SCG open and playing for day two, my seat, I was paired against Kevin Jones, who was on Grixis shadow which was supposed to be a bad matchup because they can clock you. They have stubborn denial. Like that, that matchup was tough. But case modern KCI just played for Grove of the Burn Willows in the main deck. It didn't even have green or or it, it had ancient stirrings in the deck, and like but mostly you just could gain life sometimes against Death Shadow. And I my first two land drops were just Grove of the Burn Willows. I stayed above twenty life or I kept him above twenty life for the whole game. Uh, at some point, it was clear that. He had some number of Gurmag Anglers and some number of Stubborn Denials in his hand. And I cast a KCI when I had like seven mana to pay for the maximum number of Stubborn Denials he could play. And then several turns later, I cast Spine of Ishsa with 10 mana available and just blew up a land. 
sacked spine to Casey. I put it back in my hand on the following turn, blew up a land, and I just choked him into the dirt over like five consecutive turns. And uh, Brian, you know Kevin, he he's like pretty high energy, and he was just sort of like he was like holding his cards like up high and like above his head and like looking at the board. And he was like, I I just I just can't do anything. I just, none of my cards do anything. I just can't do anything. And I was like, no, you can't. <laughs> Destroy another <laughs> land. That was just a really satisfying match of magic that I played. I miss the Mangara lock. God, just I love Casey. Throwing it out there. <laughs> yeah, that was big Mangara energy when I had that going. All right. Uh, shall we talk about vintage now? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Um, so, my question is how has Urza's saga? changed vintage like how has it changed the flex slots of these blue decks and specifically i asked this question because i probably didn't see more than two or three time vaults in like 30 matches that i played when i was playing vintage seriously before ew last year and then i i've played two or three vintage leagues post modern horizons 2 and time vault is just absolutely everywhere now that uh urza saga allows you to tutor up the the manifold key so kind of what, what's going on here with some of these blue decks since uh, you all tend to play them more than i do so saga in general has pretty much redefined how po is built because it gives you this super easy backdoor win that beats a lot of the hate uh so if you go back a year ago to that eternal weekend Lavinia was a card that everyone that played PO Paradoxical Outcome was looking to beat. And some people back then would try key vault combo, but I never thought it was very competitive. Um, Because you didn't really want to use a demonic tutor to get like a manifold key when you could just like tinker for Citadel or something else. And the idea was that like, well, you can sneak it in underneath a Lavinia and then like potentially win the game. But I always felt like it was a little bit too cute, at least for my taste. I I don't want to speak for Brian, but I never thought that it was very good. Well, when you have Saga that naturally just tutors up the key, now a single Demonic Tutor or Vampiric Tutor just wins the game on its own instead of you needing to find both halves of the combo. And that was a big part of it. On top of just like your opponent plays Collector Roof, PO used to be cold. Now you're just like, all right, I'll make an 8-8, attack you, attack you. And then like sometimes they end up like chomping with the Collector Roof now and you're just able to beat so many things that you were never able to before. And I mean just amazing yeah i haven't been playing much vintage i've only played one vintage league actually since modern horizons 2 came out and it was like a wacky donation league that i didn't really get to flex on what the format's really doing right now but just from a theory perspective all of my success with po uh three eternal weekend top eights every one of them had some sort of juke like i was never just PO or bust. Like uh, my first one had uh, mentor and in the main, and then Karn, Scion of Urza in the board, which which was just like a non-blue card advantage source or a source of construct tokens if you're ready to be down. Uh, the rug one I top aided with uh, switch. I just had one mana gorger hydra main and three more in the board. It was just like we're doing this now. PO's out, gorger's in. Uh, my w- the one after that. It was a tinker deck. It had the Citadel. Like you had another line other than PO, and just the theory of having a land that can shit out a pair of six sixes while tutoring for a piece of mana or half of a combo is just like that's everything I ever wanted. Like I just don't need don't need to play Mana Gorger Hydra anymore. As much as I love that card, 
because you get to yell gorgeous oh, every time. Too. Every time it triggers, you get to yell gorgeous. And it doesn't get old, no matter how many times you do it. But love that card. But just like building it into your mana base for free in a way that meaningfully pressures planeswalkers. And it's two things. Like a lot of the Xerox decks, they'll leave in like a plow or two in case you have something like Camball or uh if you if you pivot onto blight steel or if they can like clip your mentor then control the tokens like they don't want to have to leave in four plows against po or whatever amount of removal they have so like one land that makes two real threats plus generates additional value just that's insane i, I honestly just i have a dealer's choice donation deck in my queue for this month i'm probably going to record with some urza saga po i'm i just sold myself on it i gotta play that deck and Brian, you mentioned how the removals changed. People now leave in Hercules versus PO because they're just like, yeah, it's going to clear up two sagas or two construct tokens later from Saga. Yeah, that makes sense. Hercules was always on the border of playable against PO because you can like Herc in response to their PO and bounce their bounce targets and like fizzle some amount of their card draw, maybe all of it. So it was always like on the edge, but never as good as like Flusterstorm or Pyroblast. And I usually did end up cutting them in the mirror. But yeah, if it's going to also mop up an actual army of robots, then that's definitely a card that makes sense to keep around. All right. I'm going to go out of order here since like Brian kind of started talking about plan B's and pivot plans. Um, so one of the questions from our generic question, generic section was how important is a plan B in deck building? You know, how much of your resources should you expend towards making plan B work? And when do you want or need a plan B? So it's kind of a big question that could be a whole episode, honestly, but let's try to briefly throw some stuff out there. Yeah, so we've touched on transformational sideboard briefly. If we're talking about like a transformational plan B, I think that is almost always wrong. If we're talking about a small juke, a small sidestep, like like I was just talking about with PO, like you still want your cantrips, you still want your mocks in. Those trigger Mana Gorge or Hydra the same way that they juice up a Paradoxical Outcome. But one of these things sidesteps Pyroblast and Flusterstorm, which is going to be the most commonly sideboarded cards against you. Like a small juke, I like that. And if we want to be really generous with Plan B, like in Band Control, beating down with Endurance is Plan B. Like if my Planeswalkers don't stick or whatever, like... I have these three, four bodies that can turn sideways or in old miracles. Like you want to win with Jace or Entreat, but sometimes Snapcaster goes coast to coast. Is that what we're talking about by plan B? Like how uh, there's a, this is a wide thing that will need further definition. And like Phil said, it could be a whole episode. Like what is plan B and how do we want to define this? Go nuts. So at least with the Epic Storm, my plan A is typically ad nauseum. That said, I tend to leave, or with my playstyle, I always leave room to wiggle into plan B, which would be Echo of Aeons, or plan C, which might be empty or galvanic relay out of the board via Burning Wish. I never try to pigeonhole myself into one plan, but in my head, I know, hey, I ad nauseum 55% of the time, I echo 30% of the time. And then, like, these other plans, you know, don't happen as often. But, like, I'm always looking to just jam ad nauseum, protect it, and kill you. Like, that's my plan. 
but all of my other plans play into how my deck works, which is the main point that Brian wanted to drive home, where you don't want your plan B and plan C's to be so drastically different that they don't work well with your deck. And I think that's something that sometimes gets lost when newer players try to brew decks. It's just like, you need your deck to be coherent, and it's generally better when the backup plans work well with your main plan. Your backup plan should be one card that you draw, and when you draw that card, it requires answers that your plan A doesn't, or it attacks from some different angle. I think when your plan B becomes, I'm going to sideboard in 15 cards, and if I assemble two of these, it allows me to win at the game. I think when a lot of those start, those sorts of things start coming to light, you end up working too hard, and you turn yourself into a worse version of some other deck. Like, I, I think a lot of the things that have been really successful plan Bs, pivot cards, have been singular cards like uh, Monastery Mentor, Mana Gorger Hydra, Young Pyromancer that you just board in, you know, when someone else has maybe boarded out removal or something like that. And all of a sudden you have a really scary threat on your hands. I think those plan Bs end up being quite successful. This is ancient history, but when Young Pyromancer was first printed, uh, it was when Rich Shea was living in Pittsburgh and we were doing a lot of testing together. We had been working on Ant quite a bit at the time. That was the premier storm deck during that era. And Rich just jammed four young pyromancers in his sideboard. He was like, my deck will still have spells in it after board, no matter what my opponent's doing. And I was like, by that logic, is four young pyromancer just the sideboard plan for every combo deck now? And he was like, I think our theory moving forward, at least until proven otherwise, is yes. And it's just like, that's a powerful thing. It was at the time it was a new thing. Obviously, that didn't hold up over time. But uh, I, I would say that like Ave now is that's not Tendrils of Agony. You don't want to pass the turn when you're a Storm deck, but like Ave does a lot of things that Tendrils doesn't, and just gives you a really juicy Plan B or just an all like Plan A point two. <laughs> like I don't know how we want to define that. You still have to storm up and cast the thing, but uh, it, it's not what you built the deck to do necessarily yep i like ave being plan a yeah it, it does start uh, with a and tendrils is plan t nice i like it when we look at po it's easy to think that paradoxical outcome was plan a or is plan a i think over the last year ever since blossom citadel was printed tinker's honestly been plan a and, t and po has been plan b and urza saga has sort of taken the plan b away from the deck and when I qualified for the Showcase Challenge Qualifier, which gets you into the mocks, which is the Magic Online Championships, I was talking to the Power Nine. And Justin, aka the Power Nine, had been watching my videos where I recorded back-to-back -back Showcase Challenges trying to qualify for this event. And both of them, I went five and two throughout the Swiss. And one of them, I was lucky enough to make top eight unbreakers. So out of those 14 rounds... I went 10 and 4, and Justin mentioned that in my losses, almost all of them were when I drew too many POs. But when I was winning, it was generally with all of the other plans. So either Key Vault or just Construct Tokens or Tinker. Very rarely was I winning with PO. And Justin had been playing this Breacher deck, where you're just running 4 Hull Breacher because it dominates the matchup against the Xerox decks, which were traditionally tough, and now were much easier when you have 4 Hull Breacher. You crush the Mirror. Um, against Bug, you get Flash Blockers to kill Leobolds or um, Collector Roofs. Hold Breacher just does a lot. Obviously, it's not very good against the Shop decks, but against the Shop decks, you have Wheel of Fortune and Time Twister to just go bananas. 
made a lot of sense to me. And I was like, okay, you've sold me. I'll play this. My first three leagues were 504141. And I was like, okay, sign me up. I'm going to play this in the showcase uh, qualifier. Had I done more testing and something that I had realized during the event was the time twisters were the worst part about that deck. I just boarded them out almost every single round. Once like push came to shove, I was like, this is just too cute. I need these cards in the deck for this reason. And while I lost in top eight to the mirror that just wasn't running the twisters, that wasn't really the reason I lost. It was kind of just like they were on the play and they had great hands, but though, but my opponent and Dom Harvey both made top eight with just the same deck without the twisters and they had better cards. Like they both had mentor and an extra tutor. And I was like, Oh, both of those seem much better than what I was playing. So even though your plan can adjust, don't think that just because you've swapped means that you have the right one. You can just continue to push a different idea as well. And you don't have to just run something because it's what everyone else is doing. That was a little bit rambly. I'm sorry. I mean, it's rambly, but it feeds into our next point, right? Uh, it, it, it's not a question so much as a bullet point that we wrote down. Um, but just under our generic section, we wrote ch- change is not a bad thing. You know, you should expect your your deck to change or you should expect to swap decks. You know, you should be adjusting for the the metagame. You know, deck building is a process. It's not, OK, I have built my deck. I will now play this for the next six months. You know, if you listen to Bryant, for example, talking about, you know, iterating the Epic Storm or various PO decks, you know, every podcast episode, it's OK. I'm testing this now. Yeah. So this comment stemmed from a YouTube comment that I received, which was your list changed too often. I don't want to change my deck every few weeks to be competitive. The person that happened to leave this comment was an ant player. And a lot of ant players don't really update their decks, not a slight towards ant players, but like their lists have generally looked similar over the last 10 years. Like they've gotten dark petition and wish claw talisman and recently Eve. But outside of that, there's not a whole lot that changes about that deck. And it's interesting because I think legacy players in particular have this idea that their deck shouldn't change over a long period of time. Like they invested in their deck and this is the deck that they will be playing until the end of time where I'm just a very different deck builder. I like tinkering. I like experimenting and trying to find that next thing that's going to put me over the edge. Um, and I know there's a lot of people out there. I know that Phil's a tinkerer. Phil loves to play different decks and try out different things. And it doesn't mean that what you tested before was bad, but like sometimes that next broken thing is right around the corner if someone else had just pushed you a little bit further. You're also never going to build the perfect deck for a weekend unless you take those risks and you make those chances. Like, a, a lot of events that I've I've done pretty well in were because, like, I had my pulse on the metagame, I knew what I needed to play for that weekend, I knew what people were expecting, and, you know, I did something crazy like, okay this is the weekend to be playing four Miran Crusaders and a Sword of War and Peace in the main deck. You know, there might be weekends for, for things like that. So just, you know, keep keep an open mind in your deck building. Yeah, the, a lot of, I see a lot of legacy players, especially deck specialists, and by deck specialists, I mean people are stuck in a single deck, uh, like a single, like 80 cards or so they pick 75 of. And you get that broken clock, right, twice a day thing where, like, once every two months they might win a local and they're like yeah still got it and or it's like yeah the meta was harsh for for ant or for dnt or whatever their deck specialty is for the last two months but like it circled back around it's like nah you you just (laughs) 
you just didn't move and eventually the tide like went out around you and you were the last one standing it probably could have been a fine weekend for ant or dnt every other weekend too if you're willing to change 10 cards and really find the line the huge example in my life of taking a big deck building risk was not my risk, but I was fortunate enough to be subscribed to the Lotus Box Patreon when Urza and Oko and all those cards were still legal and modern. And back-to-back weekends, I missed top 16 of an SCG in V on Breakers, and then I won a Grand Prix in back-to-back weekends with very close to the same 75. And it's because Lotus Box figured out that you can just jam Karn the Great Creator into an Oko Urza shell. And it like the Ur- Oko shitting out artifacts nonstop and threats, Urza turning all those artifacts into mana, and somebody on Team Lotus Box just realized the best thing to do with four to ten mana sitting around in modern is Karn the Great Creator. And I would that was not in the neighborhood of something I would have ever figured out on my own as a deck builder, as a brewer, as, like where I was at my time in that time in life i never would have taken that risk it wouldn't have occurred to me to take that risk but as soon as i saw it i was like holy shit this is brilliant and it really paid off just being willing to willing to make that jump and i talked to uh ely cassis like early in day one of the gp that i won he was also on urza we had been talking about urza for a couple weeks and i was like i'm on karn the great creator and he was on some like slightly older build and I think he was still on Thopter combo. Like he was on, I think his plan was to be like so far ahead of the metagame that he ended up six weeks behind it and like trying to do that thing. And he was losing to Tron all weekend. And I was just like latticing Tron, like Karn, all your baubles and shit are off. And then next turn lattice, we're done. And I, I think I went like six and O versus Tron over the, the 18 rounds of that tournament. And uh, I think Ely made a, a day one exit because Tron was just stomping him. And you find the hole. Like, we have a lot of mana in this deck. Tron's a bad matchup. What can we do? Karn the great fucking creator. And, like, those are the sort of just strokes of brilliance that you really need to be willing to make a move on. If you if you see a hole, try to plug it and take a risk to do it. All right. And I think we're probably going to round out the episode with uh, some some art and spoilery type things. Uh, I, I was working and I didn't quite follow all of this stuff. So I'm gonna let you two take the, the lead on this uh, section. Okay, so I was also working, but I'm in a group text with Alex Bistecki, who is always tuned into any, anytime Wizards does like an announcement stream or like drops an article, he's like hitting refresh and just like dropping <laughs> the TLDR into this group text. Um. I woke up this morning, though, and saw those old-style Planeswalker secret lairs. It's Dak, Teferi, Time Raveler, and Karn the Great Creator in old frame, old templating. So instead of, you know, like the Planeswalker frame, uh, I don't know. It, it, it They'll have been out for four days by the time you all hear this. Maybe I don't need to explain it so much, but they look like cards from antiquities. They just write out the word tap or like, you may put two loyalty counters or uh, like... Teferi comes into play at four and in parentheses use counters like they're written like alpha or antiquities cards and I saw those and I was like Christ these are heinous like I as I appreciate like the boomer aesthetic 
but I will never play with those cards, and I'm so glad cards don't look like that anymore, just with modern sensibilities. The only thing those things have going for them is nostalgia. I think they're so fucking horrible. That's just my thought, though. I'll probably buy some. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, something that came up in a group that I'm in is uh, one of the secret layers, I'm not sure which one it was, was previewed, and it was Carpet of Flowers, Karmic Guide, um, Sanctum Prelate, and Sphere of Safety. And your safety and the question was asked who is the target audience for this and the only thing i could come up with is like enchantress players because like outside of that i'm not sure who like the audience is like oh, it's such a weird bit because like karmic guy doesn't fit into that oh did you miss the part of this earlier podcast we were talking about just like the person who commander like it's anyone like casuals love this stuff like like, you got your nice carpet of flowers. I'm sure they're in some cool language. I'm sure you've had them for a decade. But, like, some people are like, that's an expensive old card. I can get a cool foil printing in a box sent to my house. And Karmic Guide is a commander card. Carpet of Flowers gets some play. Uh, Sanctum Prelate, that's, that's in modern now. Like, there's some heat on that one. And just in general, the... Uh, the professor on Tolarian Community College has done some pretty deep dives on this, how the sort of predatory marketing of secret lairs works in general. Just the idea of a limited hold item. It's like you have this window to buy this thing, then it's gone. They're just uh, cashing in on FOMO, basically. It's like, whoa, what if I what if this is the only foil carpet of flowers that's ever printed? I better buy four of these. And Wizards is just raking in money hand over fist on the secret lairs. And I'm not saying they're evil for doing this. Like, uh, There's some weird stuff that has come up. Like there was a secret lair subscription series proposed. Like I I don't think it was actually rolled out, but it was in some sort of uh, focus group survey. It's like, would you sign up for a subscription series to secret lair? And that sounds kind of sus. Like you're just paying thousands of dollars at the beginning of the year and you don't know what you're buying yet don't know about that one but as far as the secret lair product being like cool alternate arts things they can't like do like these old frame planeswalkers uh, i remember when jace was previewed in, back in like 2010 or whatever somebody mocked up like an alpha jace immediately and it was awesome and we were all like wow that's so funny haha and now they, those are magic cards they can't do that outside of something like secret lair and they're getting popular artists from like comic books or Saturday morning cartoons from when we were kids to just like pick four cards, uh, draw something cool on them and they could sell them. Like It's just like a collector thing. And some of them are actually just really good value. Like the Shockland secret lair that came out, they bunch them together in clusters that make no sense unless you buy them all, which was uh, one, uh, one of the like sus things on the fringes. But it's like, if you really just want to own one of each Shockland, buying that secret lair, that like round of secret layers was cheaper than retail and you get a foil set of Shocklands. And there's like some some cool things about secret lair. And I guarantee you a lot of people who you've never met and never will are, were like, whoa, Karmic Guide, foil, snap it off. I believe it. It's just those four together, like, I do agree with the person that said it, that, like, it was a weird pairing, like, why weren't there any black cards or red cards? Like, it was just three white cards and a green card. I think um, the artist... But I get your point. The artist tweeted about that, and 
I, I think she literally said, like, I just picked four cards I like and drew a story across the four of them. Okay. Yeah, Honestly, I, I am, that's pretty dope. Yeah, I imagine, like, there's probably some handler over at Watsi where if it was, like, totally out of pocket, they would have steered her in, the, in a better direction. But, like, yeah, she just picked cards she likes and drew them the way she wanted to see them. A little bit unrelated, but also a part of the announcement today was uh, Pioneer Challenger decks. I really hope that brings some life into Pioneer. And if you look at the four decks... When they came, when the last time that I can remember there was Challenger decks, it was during the Chandra and Standard phase. Like there was like a Mono Red deck and some other ones, but you got a Chandra, you got Heart of Kirins in them. These new Pioneer decks are expected to be a very similar value, but if you look at them, it's the Lotus combo deck. You're literally getting almost the entire deck. Like the mana base has some basics in it instead of just like extra rare lands, but like you're getting the entire deck. You get the entire burn deck. You get all of uh ors off auras like these decks are actually like fairly complete and they're like 40 bucks you can just buy a pioneer deck like that is so cool to me that they're bringing these back like yeah you have to spend like an extra like 40 dollars to upgrade the rest of your deck but like who cares like these things are these are brilliant like this is what they should be marketing all the time yeah those things rule remember in world wake standard when they released i was just thinking of those <laughs> yeah they released standard challenger decks but one of them was a Stoneforge Mystic deck, and they banned Stoneforge Mystic, like, in between the time where they announced the product and sold it. And then there was a rule for a while in Standard that you could play Stoneforge Mystic, even though it's banned, if your 75 was exactly the Challenger deck. <laughs> That's a real <laughs> thing that happened. I don't know. I just think it's awesome. Yeah, and I, I like hope it. that it brings some life to Pioneer. All right. So th th there were, like, other stuff announced, right? Like Yeah, some, I'm not going to uh... dig too much into this, but... uh. The universe is beyond. Lord of the Rings seems to be going to be in the Modern Horizon slot two years out. Like, uh, it's two years from now. It's the summer release, and it's going to be modern and back legal. So we're going to get a full Lord of the Rings set, and it's going to affect our formats that we play. Then there's uh, Baldur's Gate, Fortnite, Street Fighter. Uh, also, those are going to be universes beyond. And I believe those are alternate arts of existing cards, or they made some promise. I forget exactly the language, but like they're, they're going to be like alternate versions of existing cards, much like the Godzilla cards, where it has a different name, but then in parentheses it says what it actually is. And then if it is a unique card, there's going to be a magic card version printed in like the next three months. They made some sort of promise like that. Uh, I don't remember exactly what it is, but I saw one of the. They previewed one of the Fortnite cards, and it's like, blew up Appletown, or whatever. And then in parentheses, it says Wrath of God. And, like, that kind of shit. If you're into Fortnite, it is cool. Like, I, I don't love, I don't know anything about Fortnite. I know very little about Baldur's Gate. I've played a little Street Fighter, uh, but, like, those things don't excite me. But I bought The Walking Dead. I bought Godzilla when that was an option. Like, I think these IP crossovers, infusing money into magic is cool overall it, like it's good for us to keep playing this game long term and as far as actual I sets, agree completely uh they they premiered this like cyberpunk kamigawa it's 2000 years after the storyline of champions of kamigawa and we, we just got like one promo image and it looks like a crazy like cyberpunk like neon colors like futuristic ninja and it looks fucking nice and then they previewed the the brothers war and i think that's also a set like it's going to be a set uh doing the urza versus mishra 
thing for a, a whole set. That's the news we got today. I didn't dig into it too much, but those are the things I heard are happening. All right. Uh, gentlemen, any closing thoughts here? Bang, bang. Rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat. There it is. All right. I'll just like throw up some finger guns that the audience can clearly see, and uh, we'll call it a day. Remember, if you have any questions for us that you would like to uh, hear our answers to on the next episode, please get us to those in some way via twitter our website form um sending passenger pigeons to bryant's house like you you do whatever you need to do 